Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Well, you are in for a treat today because my interviewee is Professor Gerald Bray. This is the 25th anniversary of Beeson Divinity School. We were started in 1988, and Gerald Bray has been a professor at Beeson Divinity School for 20 of those years. For a number of years, he was our Anglican professor of divinity, and he now is a research professor teaching in the area of church history, historical theology. He's a world-renowned author of so many books, I wouldn't even begin to name them, but I do want to mention the fact that he has produced three volumes in the Ancient Christian Commentary series, which involved translating and editing comments from the early church fathers, and the very first volume in the sequel to that series, the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, and Gerald did the volumes on uh, Galatians and Ephesians. His work uh, has been so helpful to the life of the church in so many ways, and Gerald, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. George. It's a great pleasure to be here and a great privilege to be able to speak to people. Thank you. Now, say a little bit about yourself. You're a Canadian by birth. You lived in England for many years. You're now multicultural and multicultural. Is that a word? <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose you could say that. I mean, I, I was born in Canada, in French Canada, to English parents, so grew up in a multicultural environment from the beginning. I studied in Paris, I studied then in Cambridge, and I really call that my home. In my adult life, I've spent most of my time there. Um, I came to Beeson 20 years ago, um, having never been in Birmingham before and wondering how long I would last. 20 years later, I'm still here, which is kind of a miracle, I suppose, in some ways, when you look back. But I think it's a reminder to me that if you walk with the Lord each step of the way, he, he takes you where he wants you to go. And we look ahead, not behind. And if we do glance back, we see things that have worked out, you know, in, in ways that we would never have predicted. And that's one of the exciting things about, about the Christian life. Well, I have a confession to make, Gerald, and that is when we first invited you to come, I knew you were a great scholar. I knew you were a fantastic teacher. I had no reservations on that front. But I really wondered, would this very erudite scholar relate to our Beeson students? I wasn't sure. But, of course, the answer 20 years later is uh, fantastically so. Uh, you're one of the most popular teachers we have, and I think that's because you take the student seriously, you relax with them, you joke with them, but you also communicate something of your own life with them, and that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Just the other day, I didn't give them any homework because Alabama was playing in the national final, and of course they won, and I knew perfectly well that none of the students would re do any reading. <laughs> and I think if you meet them on, on their level, they meet you on yours, and I think that's a good way to, to carry on. Now, in this conversation today, I wanted to focus on the course you have been teaching at Beeson in this January term on Puritan spirituality. Now, Puritanism is a word that's almost a hackneyed word in our vocabulary today. Maybe you could get us started by saying, who are the Puritans and why should we be concerned about them? Well, the Puritans were a loose group of people. They weren't a defined group of people, a kind of club that you signed on to or something like that. In that respect, 
respect, I think you could compare them to charismatics or evangelicals today in the sense that you you know more or less what they're like and, and you, you recognize them when you see them. But it's difficult to define precisely what the boundaries are. Puritanism as a movement really grew up in England because the original English Reformation was not as thoroughgoing as it was in other countries. Uh, and one of the main reasons for that, of course, was that it was state-imposed. Uh, it started from the top down, um, which in one sense gave it an authority that you know people would uh, follow, but in another sense created a problem because you had a Protestant church with no Protestants in it. Uh, and the question really was how could the, the teaching of the Reformation be conveyed to, uh, to an entire nation? Uh, and that, of course, couldn't be done overnight, and it took a long time and so on. And the Puritans were people who uh, wanted to pursue that goal of bringing the teaching of the Reformation down to the level of the ordinary person in a way that they would understand and in a way that would change their lives because they were very concerned that the theology and so on of Martin Luther and John Calvin was not just something that people studied in university and that kind of thing, but that actually made a difference to the lives of ordinary people. And they were pressing for this and they wanted education, they wanted preaching and teaching in the church. Now, of course, they were controversial because the minute you want to change somebody's life, you know you're not always going to be very popular because not everybody wants to change. So this caused a certain amount of controversy. Yes, that's certainly true. But in the longer run, I think one can say they were doing this not for their own benefit or advantage. They weren't trying to gain followers for themselves. They were trying to get people closer to God and benefit from the advantages that they had in an open Bible to read and the freedom to worship uh, and so on. And so this was the, the thing which really kept them going and which prevented them from becoming a narrow and sectarian group of people. One of the things that's interesting about Puritanism is how many traditions within the Protestant family find some root back in that Puritan experience. For example, I'm a Baptist, as you know. Well, there's John Bunyan. There are many other Baptists that would claim to be Puritans. And, of course, Presbyterians sometimes claim it in an almost exclusive way. You're an Anglican, and obviously there are great Anglican Puritans. I think of William Perkins and Richard Sibbs. And say a little bit about that question of what sort of came out of the Puritan tradition in terms of its diversity. Yes, well, Puritan diversity was really part of the, the freedom of the movement, I suppose, originally, that they concentrated very much on the gospel message, uh, on what the New Testament taught, and focused people on this. But, of course, there were issues that the New Testament didn't deal with specifically, or not in the, with the degree of clarity which satisfied everybody. And church government was an obvious a example of that. And I think what you found in England in the 16th and early 17th centuries, where a lot of people were dissatisfied with the existing system, which they felt hadn't been properly reformed. But 
the Bible did not give a very clear guideline as to how it should should be reformed. Should it be a national church controlled from the center? Uh, should it be local congregations? And of course, this was a difference between Baptists and Presbyterians that is not always immediately evident today, uh, you know, but is definitely uh, there. Uh, and in a sense was more important than the question of baptism, for example, because, I mean, who was the controlling um, uh, influence on on the life of an individual congregation, and you mentioned John Bunyan as a very good example of this, because Bunyan established a, his church in in Bedford, which is still going strong today. Um, but he would not, although he was himself a Baptist, uh, he would not allow the question of baptism to divide his church, and so he insisted that people who believed in believers' baptism and people who practiced infant baptism should have equal rights in the congregation and that there would be two, two membership roles. And that is still the case today, which is a very interesting situation and shows that some of the things which later on became matters of demarcation, shall I say, rather than perhaps division, weren't seen in that way at the time. I mean, there was, there was a willingness to accommodate a wider range of opinion than perhaps we realize now it, it was only later that you know people sort of formed themselves into what we would call denominations there was no puritan denomination as such so that kind of thing happened later but in their heyday the puritans were much more flexible and able to sort of move in different circles than perhaps we would realize today and that's actually an attractive thing for us because of course in our day with a more ecumenical way of thinking and into denominational so on, we can go back to the Puritans and find a common heritage that we all share in, in different ways. And uh, it can be a factor for uniting people rather than dividing them, which is a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Is there such a thing as a Puritan way of worship? Uh, how would you say about that? Well, uh, yes, uh, I think the heart of the Puritan worship was the preaching and teaching ministry. And uh, this, of course, was something shared with wider Protestantism to some degree. And it's not to denigrate other aspects uh, of worship, but... Uh, at that time, uh, I suppose something like hymn singing, for example, was not as prominent a part of worship as it would be today. I mean, that came with the Wesleys in the 18th century revival. They would sing the Psalms. They, they would, would sing the Psalms, yes, and there was division about that as to whether you should chant the Psalms as they were in the scriptures without changing the words, or whether you should turn them into meter, uh, you know, rather like hymns, as we do with the Lord's My Shepherd, you know, mm. uh, we still sing the metrical version. Uh, and people disagreed about this, but the Psalms were definitely there. And of course, you mentioned John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a hymn writer. Um, you know, he did write hymns. So there, there was that aspect uh, to them, but it wasn't central to their worship in the way that it might be today. The same, I think, would have to be said about the sacraments generally. We've already discussed baptism, differences over that. The Lord's Supper was, of course, part of their their worship, but the emphasis was very much on preparation for it and therefore, of course, on infrequent celebration because you couldn't 
prepare uh, with the depth that was required, you know, every week. So there was a tendency towards that. But on the preaching and teaching side, there's no doubt that that's what they saw as their primary activity. And in fact, the Puritans got started, you might say, the original Puritans were hired by churches to be as lecturers. That was the title they were given. And what that meant was they were to preach sermons and teach people the Bible. So that was very much the heart and focus of their ministry. Now think about the 17th century, uh, because you have this great seismic event, the English Civil Wars, uh, the regicide, uh, the death of Charles I, followed, uh, you know, of course, by Oliver Cromwell and the Protectorate. All of this great convulsive revolution going on and Puritanism trying to navigate its way through it. And then on the other side, the Restoration period, uh, how did Puritanism, what was Puritanism like on the other side of the English Revolution? You mean at the time of the Restoration? Yes. Well, uh, this very interesting thing, because we've just celebrated the 350th anniversary of that in 1662, when the prayer book was reimposed on the church and people who couldn't subscribe to it were forced to leave, the so-called Great Ejection. And it's very interesting because traditionally people have believed that about 20% of the ministers of the church actually left at the time. That's been the, the, the sort of standard thinking about this. But that figure is a very hard one to understand, as it said, because although about 20% of the ministerial posts did in fact change hands, it's not entirely clear what happened to those who left in many cases, they went simply down the road somewhere else uh, and were reintegrated into the state church later on or some in another place for various reasons. I mean, sometimes a man who had been in the church before came back and claimed his what he thought was his rights, and so the person who was there had to leave the post but didn't want to leave the church, so he had to be found somewhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And whether you count him as somebody who was ejected or not, I mean, this is a very, you know, difficult thing when you want to start playing with statistics. But I think what has been shown now is that overall, only about 5% of the ministers actually left and stayed out of the state church. With the result, of course, that the majority, not just of the Puritans, but the majority, probably either the majority or a very sizable minority of the of the clergy of the anglican clergy retained their puritan heritage even though the the political side you know they had to uh, conform to what was required by the state they didn't of course change their views and a good example of this was john wesley's father samuel wesley who came from a Puritan family who accepted the the settlement and and conformed to it and so on, but of course whose personal life and and family life retained the devotional emphasis. I mean, Wesley's mother was a great Bible study leader and promoter of of these things in, in her own home, and of course the young Wesleys grew up with this. So the Puritan heritage came down to them in the family. And this kind of thing was much more common than we might suppose, because you see in the mid-18th century when the revival occurred, 
a lot of people suddenly appeared from nowhere, apparently. But of course, they hadn't actually come from nowhere. They'd been people like the Wesleys who had retained this tradition, retained this heritage, but hadn't had been able to express it publicly or had the opportunity to do so in the same way. And when the revival began, these people resurfaced. So we see how Puritanism actually re remained there below the surface uh, for several generations. Uh, there's a revival of Puritanism today in the sense that of interest in Puritanism mm -hmm. and the publication of Puritan works and writings. Uh, the Banner of Truth Trust, for example, is well known for doing this. There are other uh, publishers that are bringing out Puritan works. Some of our listeners may be interested in knowing what you would think would be, what are two or three or four of the great Puritan works everybody, every pastor should know? The Banner of Truth have done a great work in producing uh, what they call the Puritan paperbacks. And the, the wonderful thing about Puritan paperbacks is that they are short and they are inexpensive. And you can put them in your pocket and carry them around with you and read them when you have an opportunity. So that's a very good thing to be able to do. There are many. Of course, everyone should have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, this is a classic of English literature. But like many classics, it's astonishing how few people have ever really got into it. And yet you can't understand the spiritual basis of, of the Puritan movement if, if you don't understand that. Another one, of course, very important, Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor. Again, it's easy to read the Reformed Pastor and think, oh, I could never be like that today, which in some ways is true. But it's interesting to reflect as to why not, and partly why not, but also uh, partly what can we learn? How can, you know, to be challenged as, as pastors? So those two things, I would say, from the first of all, from the point of view of personal spiritual life, and also from ministry, I would, would make absolutely fundamental. But then, of course, there are many other people. I mean, William Perkins, who was an Elizabethan Puritan, not widely read today. Uh, Thomas Brooks, John Flavel or Flavel, writing on suffering, you know, very revealing, very good uh, work. And I'm, I'm particularly pleased because one of my students who took the course a few years ago uh, was taken very much by Flavel's work and has now just completed a PhD on the subject. So, yeah. uh, you know, we praise God for that. I mean, it's, it shows how this, this, can, this can happen. Tell us his um, name. That's Brian Cosby. Yeah, who's Brian. He may be listening. Hello, Brian. He may be listening, but he's done a very good, good piece of work on that. And it's thrilling to see how, you know, that can happen. Uh, Richard Sibbs is another one. Mm. You see, people mm. don't all know a great deal about now. Thomas Watson, his body of divinity, which became and remained a fundamental theological text, really, until Charles Hodge came along in the 19th century and kind of updated or displaced it in those circles. So you have a number of things like this, and the banner have brought that brought this back. John Owen, of course, is a great um, Puritan writer. Not as easy to read, but, no, but deep and rich. I would say not the place to begin for that reason. There is a lot of very deep Puritan stuff, but it's best not to start with that. It's best to start with shorter things mm -hmm. that get you into the style, get you into the feel of what's going on, and then you increase your, your desire. I think one of the problems is people sometimes see a shelf full of, of you know, weighty tomes and think, where will I begin? I can't do this. Uh, and so they don't start. 
and that's a pity. So I would recommend the Puritan paperback series as a good way in. I'm going to go a little bit further down the road in history and ask you to make a brief comment about two giants that I think inherited much of the Puritan tradition you've been talking about. One of them was George Whitfield in England, a, a compatriot of Wesley and a friend and adversary of Wesley. But then here in North America, of course, Jonathan Edwards. Whitfield and Edwards. Yes, well, of course, George Whitfield is a classic example of the kind of person who had a Puritan heritage, which had been somewhat below the radar, you know, over a generation. And when, when the revival came, I mean, he's one of the people who appeared with the, the, this teaching and, 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 and preaching ministry and, and did a, a tremendous work in, in this way. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was from a different kind of background because, of course, having been in New England, Puritanism had never been suppressed in the way that it had been in England politically, but it had suffered in other ways. It had become ossified to some extent in New England, and you know there were threats to it from other uh, other sources, more theological questions, Unitarianism, and that kind of thing. And Jonathan Edwards was in a situation where, in theory, he was part of the the, the majority uh, culture, but actually, because of his own intense spiritual life and so on, was found himself in a kind of opposition to that, sort of trying to revive it and renew it and so on, but not always being terribly welcome in doing so. And uh, it's particularly interesting that when Whitfield came to North America, although he and Edwards were contemporaries, because their background was so different, and they, they came out of a different situation. Edwards initially was very suspicious of Whitfield, didn't particularly want to have much to do with him. But they met and they, they became friends and, and they overcame that, which was a very interesting thing, you know, to see that, that this, this was possible, that this could be done. And the impression that they made on people who didn't necessarily share their beliefs. I mean, one of the people who was very much impressed by both men was Benjamin Franklin, who would go and listen to them, disagree with what they had to say, but admire them for, you know, the way they said it and, and for their evident conviction. So these people were very impressive, uh, you know, in their time, and they, they had an audience much wider than than one might think. Both of them, of course, died young before their time uh, in different ways. And, well, they would say, of course, that was the providence of God, that he raised them up, he gave them a, a ministry, and then he took them perhaps before they could uh, ruin what they built. I mean, who knows, you know. <laughs> but certainly the, the legacy which they both left in their different ways. Um, and it's interesting, George Whitfield, of course, is equally honored on both sides of the Atlantic. Jonathan Edwards has been rediscovered, I think it would be fair to say, in, uh, in recent times. But it's very encouraging, particularly in a time when the forces of secularism are so strong, to see that someone like that can command uh, such respect, you know, as he did in his own lifetime, right across the, the, the board from people who sympathized and who understood him and also from those who were not so sympathetic. 
So on both sides of the Atlantic, Old England, New England, there's a, a wealth of a treasury of Puritan writings, literature, much of it's still available in print today, and it would be well worth anyone's time uh, to spend some time uh, with these uh, Puritans of days gone by. One final question, Gerald. Are you a Puritan? That's a very difficult question to answer because clearly in one sense, no, because I live in the 21st century, not in the 16th or 17th century. And uh, you can't really put yourself, you know, be unhistorical in that sense. I mean, the Puritan era has come to an end. Just like asking someone, are you a church father? Yes, that's (laughs) right. And, I mean, even Jonathan Edwards was someone born out of due time in a way. I mean, he was a kind of post-Puritan in some ways. So I don't think it would be honest to say that, or to try to say that. You have to live in the time in which God has placed you. On the other hand, I mean, I certainly follow them in, in their emphases, in their teaching and want to rescue for today as much of the heritage that we can uh, from them. And indeed, I've, I've always thought that one of the things I need to do in my own ministry is show people how their ministry in the 21st century can pick up from the Puritans and recycle their emphases in different ways for ministry today, not to copy in a kind of superficial imitation. Uh, I mean, we cannot stand in wheat fields and preach for three hours. I mean, this is just not possible today. But we have other advantages and other opportunities. And the message, the the message that the Puritans were trying to get across hasn't changed. Uh, And it's just as vitally important for us today as it was for them. And, And it's this that we have to see and try to recover some of their intensity, some of their passion, some of their concern and their love for people to be able to to, to put that across to our generation and in that sense honor them and make people today see how important they were. Mm. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Professor Gerald Bray. He is research professor at Beeson Divinity School And he's teaching a course on Puritan spirituality. We've been talking about the Puritans, and we commend them to you. Thank you, Gerald, for this scintillating conversation. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.